Matthew 12 and verse 33. This is Jesus preaching. He's midway through uh, speaking to some Pharisees who've opposed him uh, and have been saying that Jesus' work is uh, far from good, is satanic. So Jesus says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Is Jesus pointing at you this morning? Uh, the man walks into the room and says, your mother and brother and sisters are outside. Jesus points, verse 49, extends his hand towards the disciples and says, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. This is my family, says Jesus. And he extends his arm and points to them. Is Jesus, would Jesus point at you this morning? Were he in the room? Are you in his family, in other words? Jesus is a very divisive character and deliberately so. He knows what he's doing. Uh, just above the, the reading, or just above where we started reading at least, in verse 30 of chapter 12, uh, Jesus says to the same group of Pharisees, whoever is not with me is against me. He, he runs the dividing line of, of the human race right down the middle and says that he stands on the line. Whoever's with me, well, they're part of my family. But if you're not with me, you're against me. It is me, says Jesus, that divides humanity in two. So were he to walk into the room, would his arm be pointing at you? Or would you be on the outside? And how certain are you uh, of that? Now, Jesus says there's no sideline. 
Uh, You can't stand on the edge of the pitch watching the two sides play, Jesus and those who are against Jesus. You can't sit in the stands and, and watch the game. There's no fence to sit on. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. And there is no neutral ground, no spiritual Switzerland. Matthew has spent his whole gospel trying to build up the significance of Christ. In the first four chapters, he introduces us to Jesus. And his his big aim is to persuade us that Jesus is, is God and, in fact, God's king. God himself and a human king. So we read that Jesus descended from David, Israel's great king, in the genealogy that starts the gospel. We find that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, David's city. We find kings come and bow down to him in the, in, in the manger and worship. And we find that Jesus is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so when Jesus' ministry begins, in chapter 4, we're told, well, he's, it's going to be a ministry of word and work. He's going to do amazing things and say amazing things. So chapters 5 through 7 are Jesus saying amazing things. It's a sermon on the mount. And it's a sermon that, again, divides humanity in two. You either build your house on the rock or the sand. You're either with me or against me. And after he's finished his amazing words in chapters 5 through 7, he goes on to his amazing works. Chapters 8 and 9 give us 10 miracles that Jesus does. Again, trying to make us see that he is more than just an average man. In chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples out to tell everyone about him. I'm such good news, you need to let the nation know. And in our section, chapters 11 through 13, the part of the Bible we're looking at at the moment, it's all about how people react to Jesus. Matthew has built up his identity, shown his amazing words and works, and now says, look, how are you going to react to him? And not everyone is on side. And the shocking thing, I think, in our chapters is that most of the people who are against Jesus are people who, in one sense, are very religious, very spiritual, and kind of orthodox. People who would believe the Old Testament to be the word of God. Uh, People who would be very moral. People, in other words, like the Pharisees. It's very important we know that that all the words we've just read are addressed first and foremost to the Pharisees. If you look a bit earlier in chapter 12, you'll see the incident that kicks off this whole uh, sermon, we might call it. You see in verse 22, uh, uh, this man is brought to Jesus and he's demon oppressed. Not, not, he's not possessed, but he's somehow being oppressed by a demon, a real spiritual evil force. And therefore he's both blind and mute. He can neither see nor speak. And Jesus heals him. And then people divide. So you see this division. You see verse 23 uh, and verse 24. Some people are beginning to get it. Is this the son of David? Is this God's king? But the Pharisees... Their words reveal they're in a different place. No, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, they say. For the Pharisees, their words reveal their heart. Their words reveal they just do not think that Jesus is God's king. In fact, they think he's satanic. And hence, uh, Jesus says to them in verses 33 through uh, 37, that they're like rotten trees, in, in, in the image there in verse 33, the tree is the heart and the fruit here is, is our words or the Pharisees' words in particular. Sometimes in other places in the Bible, um, the picture is used that the tree is our heart and the fruit is our actions. But here it's all about our words. And if the tree is bad, the fruit is going to be bad. Children, you know that, don't you? If, how do you tell if an apple tree is healthy? Well, has it got apples on it? Healthy growing apples? Or has it got sort of manky, stinky fruit? If the fruit is horrible, it means the roots are ruined. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you 
Well, you're like serpents. See that verse 34? Your tongues are full of poison. The, the words you speak are, are venomous. You're snakes. The snake in the Bible is the, ultimately the devil, isn't it? You're, Jesus again is saying, you're, you're the ones actually who are under the power of Satan. You're the ones who are speaking evil. Now, it's not that the Pharisees were the kind of people who'd go around using coarse language, telling smutty jokes. They wouldn't be in favour of lying or, or deceiving. But the evil words they speak primarily here are those words of verse 23, that Jesus is satanic rather than saviour. In the depths of their hearts, at verse 35, what they treasure is not Jesus, but rather themselves. And so as, as, as Jesus listens to their words, he says, your words are giving away your heart. Is what you say that reveals what you think on the inside. And that's why it's your words that will either justify you or leave you condemned in verse 36 and 37. It's kind of verses that, that jump out of us and make us think, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel, does it? Your words will justify you or condemn you. Now, Jesus isn't saying at all that, that on the last day, God will weigh up everything we've said. And if we've said, you know, a million nice things and only 500,000 bad things will be okay. But if we said more bad things and good things, we'll be in trouble. No, the words he's talking about here are the words we speak about Christ primarily. It is those who confess Jesus are my saviour who will be justified, declared to be right with God and welcome into heaven. It is those who say with the Pharisees that they want nothing to do with Jesus who will be condemned The Pharisees don't like this, uh, unsurprisingly. And so they ask for a sign. Did you notice that? Isn't it an amazing question? Does anything strike you as odd about the question, verse 38, when the Pharisees come and say, look, give us a sign? God, show us that you're, you're God's king. If history is all about you, if you are really the dividing line, show us. What an extraordinary question. What has Jesus just done? He's just given sight to a blind man, allowed a mute man to speak. In just this chapter, he, he's healed a man with a withered hand. Ten other miracles happened a couple of chapters earlier. He's given loads of signs. And yet, strangely, he says, look, I'm not going to give you another sign. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes I'm, I'm not going any further, says Jesus. It's an evil generation, verse 39, that asks for a sign. And all you're going to get is a sign of Jonah. Now, children, do you remember Jonah? Can you remember what happened to Jonah? He was a prophet in the Old Testament. What happened to him? Something really amazing happened to him. Do you remember? Yeah. He was exactly that. He was eaten by a big fish, wasn't he? Uh, he was meant to go off to, um, to preach to Nineveh and he ran the other way on a boat. He went overboard and he was eaten by a fish for three days and three nights. And so Jesus says, look, the sign of Jonah is what's going to be given to you. Just as Jonah was in the fish three days, three nights, I'll be in the ground three days, three nights. Jewish people count inclusively, by the way. So I know Jesus wasn't literally in the, in the, in the in the grave for three whole daytimes and three whole night times but the way jews count is they refer to any part of one day as a day and a night okay so if you had an event that began at 20 to midnight and finished at 20 past midnight that would last two days and two nights in their kind of idiom that's why jesus speaks in that way jesus is saying look the only sign you'll get is my death and resurrection i will rise again after three days after you've crucified and buried me and that is the only sign that you'll get now. Amazingly, when Jonah preached, says Jesus, even the Ninevites believed. 
Ninevites weren't God's people. They didn't have the Bible. They just had one little sermon from Jonah and they believed. Or think about the Queen of Sheba, says Jesus. She's the queen in verse 42, the queen of the south. She, in, um, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 10, she travels probably from what's now Yemen. She travels across the desert to come to King Solomon. And she's sceptical. She doesn't believe that, that Solomon is God's appointed king. And she comes with loads of questions and she asks all these questions and she goes away amazed and, and says, yes, you are the, the true son of God. In that sense, it's not son of God divine, but you are the, the royal figure that God has put on the throne. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, look, these guys who don't have the Bible, who haven't had much preaching, these guys who are outsiders to God's people in the Old Testament, who aren't Jews, who aren't Israelites, they believed and yet someone greater than, well, greater than anyone they met is here. See, the expression comes twice. In verse 41, that the men of Nineveh repent, but something greater than Jonah is here. There is a greater prophet than Jonah, says Jesus. There's a greater king than Solomon, in verse 42. Interestingly, earlier in the chapter, in, in verse 6 of chapter 12, Jesus said to the, the same Pharisees, there's something greater than the temple that's here as well. I, says Jesus, I am greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament, greater than the kings, the greatest kings of the Old Testament, greater than the priests of the Old Testament, the three great institutions, the prophets who spoke for God, the kings who ruled for God, uh, the priests who represented uh, God's people to God. I'm greater than all of them, and still you won't believe. And that's why, well, that's why the, 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 this generation, says Jesus, this generation is evil. Uh, twice Jesus looks at the people in front of him and says, you are an evil generation. There's only one other bio, uh, generation in the whole Bible who are called an evil generation. And it's the generation of the Exodus. Do you remember the Exodus? Uh, it's the story of God's people being rescued from slavery. Uh, they're in Egypt, and Pharaoh, the king, won't let them go. And so what does God do? He does all sorts of miracles, doesn't he? With the ten plagues, he turns the Nile to blood, he blacks out the sun. He does ten amazing things. Eventually, Pharaoh lets them go, and they, they escape Egypt, but, but the, the army chases them, and they come to the Red Sea. They're going to drown or be killed, and God parts the Red Sea. So they get through the Red Sea, another amazing miracle, and they come to the desert. And they realise they're going to die in the desert of starvation or thirst. And God amazingly provides water from a rock and miraculous bread called manna. And what do they do? What does that generation do? The people who came out of, of slavery? They start moaning and saying, is God really among us? They disbelieve. They won't trust. Despite all they've seen, all these miracles, all the evidence, they're the luckiest generation to have lived and they won't believe. And so they die in the wilderness. They never get to the promised land. The promised land is a picture of heaven and they, they just don't get there. They've had so much. They've seen so much. And yet because they're an evil generation, they die short of their full salvation. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, that is, that is like you. You are the new evil generation. You've seen so much. And yet you still won't believe. That's why you're worse off than when you began. It's a strange little parable in verses 43 to 45, isn't it? This idea of the spirit going out of a house and uh, sort of drifting around a bit and then coming back, finding out that no one else has moved in, so he moves in with three of his evil friends. 
Some of the details, I think, are a little bit hard to get your head around. But the basic point is there in verse 46. At the end of this process, the person is worse than they were to begin with. The last state of that person is worse than the first. Again, remember, Jesus is talking to that generation and saying, look, you've had me. I've done all these miracles. I've driven out demons. I've healed the sick. I've given sight to the blind. But because you reject me, you'll end up being in a worse state than when you began. If you know people who've been divorced, who've been in love and bound really closely together, tragically, very often, when they then divorce, they are the person, they are the people who most dislike each other on the planet. I know it doesn't always happen. Sometimes you get sort of semi-amical divorces. But very often it's those who've been tight together who end up furthest apart. Well, so it is with me in this generation. I've walked among you, cared for you. I am one of you. Jesus is a Jew and it's right. But he says... Ultimately, you will end up worse than before I came. And so what's he going to do? He's going to move on. That last little section, he's going to move on and find a new family. If the Israelites, his own flesh and blood, will reject him, he'll form a new family. As Jesus is teaching, presumably it's inside. And someone comes and says, look, your your mother Mary and your brothers are outside. Jesus had... A human mother, Mary. He had human brothers and sisters. I suppose they're half-brothers and sisters, aren't they? Because they'd be the children of Joseph and Mary. They aren't. Uh, whereas Jesus wasn't Joseph's natural son. Uh, we meet them at the end of chapter 13. If you just look at the end of that chapter. Uh, another group of people are uh, uh, just, just can't believe that Jesus is the son of God. And look what they say in verse 55 of chapter 13. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters here with us? Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. James, Judas, Joseph, Simon. They're all outside. But Jesus says, no, my real family are here. And he points to the disciples. My real family are defined no longer by blood, but by the Spirit. That's how you know who's in my people. Those who listen to the will of God and obey him. They are my brothers and sisters. It's already been hinted at by Jesus comparing himself to Jonah. Children, do you remember the end of the Jonah story where he goes to Nineveh and he preaches and they repent? And Jonah, is he happy that all the people become believers? No, he's furious. Remember that? He's absolutely furious. And you've got to ask the question why? Why is Jonah so angry that these Assyrians have become Christians? Christians before the time, you know what I mean? They've become believers in the true God. Sometimes people say, well, it's just that he doesn't like them or he doesn't want grace to go to other people. That's half true. But Jonah knows his Old Testament and Jonah knows that when God starts blessing other nations outside of Israel, it's a sign that God has moved on from the Israelites, that they've rejected him one time too many. In chapters like Deuteronomy 32 and others in the Old Testament, where God warns his people, if you keep turning your back on me, if you keep turning your back on me, one day I'll go to other countries and bless them instead. I'll form a new family. So that's what he does with the Ninevites. They're Assyrians. They've got no Old Testament, had no prophets, got no temple, no God's king. But I'll go to them instead. So when Jonah sees the Assyrians become believers, he realises it's bad news for God's other family, the Israelites. Jesus is saying the same thing is going on now. This generation, I'm turning my back on. You've rejected me one time too many. And I'm going to build a new family that's not defined by blood. It doesn't matter if you're descended from Abraham anymore. 
but defined by those who will do the will of my Father, those who are born of the Spirit. Now look, we've galloped through a lot of material there. Uh, it's a long sermon. I wanted to cover it. Uh, if you've looked at the uh, sheet, you'll see I put a title down for today's sermon, uh, The Spirit-Filled Life. Now, confession time, I have to write those more than a week in advance, and I write the titles looking on what I think the passage is going to be about, and sometimes I then get to actually spend the, the week preparing the talk and think, yeah, not so much. Uh, this one, I think, is it's not a bullseye, but it's not a million miles off. I think if I was going to retitle this sermon this time, rather than calling it The Spirit-Filled Life, I'd want to call it The Spirit-Empty Life. Because rather than Jesus describing you know, what his family looked like, most of the passage is describing what those outside look like. Most of it is Jesus speaking against the Pharisees rather than describing what his disciples should be like. But of course, if you look at what the people outside are like, the Pharisees, those who've rejected God, it lets you know what you should be like. They're two sides of the same coin. So I want to, before we close, give three signs Uh, Three pieces of evidence that would let us know that we are part of the family. That that Jesus would point to us and say, yes, you are with me. You are my mother, my brother, my sister. Three signs from the sermon that we've just walked through. Uh, The first sign is that Jesus' family will stand out from their generation. Jesus' family will stand out from their generation. The spirit-filled person will stand out from their generation. Uh, Jesus, of course, as we've said, is speaking to one particular group of people. But, but you see that the, the, the underneath it lies a particular logic. It is your generation who've rejected me. Therefore, Jesus is assuming that, that each generation overall has a particular way of thinking. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Think of the disciples. They're part of the same generation as the Pharisees, but they believe. So when he talks about a wicked generation, he's not saying every single person without exception, but he's saying this is the way most people in this generation are thinking. Is it not the case that at the moment that is true for our generation? If you're not convinced by the Christian faith, if you're someone who you say, I'm I'm not sure about all this. Perhaps it's your first time at church or... First time you come across a Christian, someone's dragged you along. I don't know. First of all, you're very welcome. I hope you feel really at home here. But let me just ask you a couple of questions. How much has the thinking of your generation shaped what you believe about Jesus rather than you actually investigating for yourself? If you're born in the West, particularly if you're born in the UK, in the latter half of the 20th century, or the early 21st century, I suppose now, then almost everything about your culture has pushed you to think that it's okay to stand in the, to sit in the stands and say that Jesus is a nice guy who it's all right for some people to follow and perfectly safe for others to ignore. Everything we watch on TV, uh, everything that, that, that we're taught, particularly in RE, I was, I was head of governess for a school in Derby for, for years and years and years, and honestly, the RE, the, they were lovely, but the teaching was dreadful. What they spoke about, taught about Jesus was nowhere near what Jesus taught. We're taught to see Jesus as one of a number of lovely, holy men who some people like to follow, but you can safely ignore. We're not taught that Jesus said, you're either with me or against me, and your eternal destiny rests on that. How much of your thinking about Jesus is just shaped by your generation? You've just assumed that he isn't the son of God, that you can safely keep it at arm's length. 
Uh, Jesus' words are pretty severe. Go back to the tree and its fruit uh, in verses 33 through 37. He constantly speaks about good and bad. But what makes the tree good uh, is what makes the person good, and that is what they treasure. And it's shown, as we saw earlier, in their words. Your words reveal what you treasure, and it's what you say about Jesus that makes you good or bad in Jesus' eyes. In other words, the Pharisees were perfectly nice. Okay? They would be good neighbours, good friends, reliable, trustworthy. Frankly, they'd be at church every week. But Jesus can still look at them and say, though you're nice, you're evil. Why? Because they are not willing to say that Jesus is God's king. They're not willing to put their trust in him for their salvation. Their words show what they treasure, and they don't treasure Christ. And Jesus is so self-centered that he's willing to say, well, that makes you evil. See, there is no neutrality. There are lots of very lovely, nice people who Jesus is willing to look at and say, ultimately, down in your heart, you're evil because you're not living for me. Now, I know that's striking and shocking. You have all sorts of questions about that. But see, it is what he's saying. Therefore, he's saying that your your words are a bit like the the first budding of a flower, that they're revealing what you say about Christ and beginning to reveal what's actually going down in your heart. C.S. Lewis took this and and said, look, we've got to be really honest. We've got to be really honest. We know that Christians are an absolute mess. You know, if you're not a Christian, you might know that some of your your Christian friends are not nicer than your other friends who aren't Christians. If you're a Christian, you know full well you are not nicer than other people. You don't look at yourself and look down your nose at others and think, well, I'm nice and, and other people aren't. But if you have that new heart that Jesus gives, the beginning of a beautiful flower is beginning to grow, is beginning to bud. Whereas if you reject Jesus, the sour fruit is beginning to grow. And C.S. Lewis said this, if you could see what that seed would grow into, In the case of someone who rejects Jesus, if you could see what they will become if they follow on that trajectory, you would recoil in horror. And if you could see what the trajectory of those who trust in Jesus is, what that flower will grow into, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship, so beautiful it be. The trajectory begins now, and at the moment you can't see much difference, but the end result is huge when Jesus comes back and judges. So we must stand out from our generation If you're not convinced, don't just go with the flow. If you are a Christian, do you understand that it's not going to be possible, almost certainly not going to be possible, for your colleagues and Jesus both to extend their arms and say, yes, you're one of us. Children, it might be the case at school sometimes, you're going to have to decide, am I going to stand with Jesus or am I going to go along with what my friends think? Some of you will have just started university, I guess. It is not possible for your hallmates your flatmates and Jesus both to extend their arms and say yes he she is with me at some point we will have to stand out from our generation for some of us we know the pain of having that with our natural family Jesus here points away from his natural family to his spiritual family now as a matter of fact we know from elsewhere in the Bible that his natural family do come to trust in him but for some of you you know that your natural family your flesh and blood 
they stand against Jesus. With great comfort in knowing that he looks at you, if you've trusted in him, and says, he is my brother, she is my sister. Whatever else the world may say, he includes you. God's people stand out from their generation. God's people trust the gospel. That middle section about the sign of Jonah. Uh, It tells us that the only way people come to trust Jesus ultimately is through looking at his death and resurrection. Now, this is not to say we shouldn't ask questions. Again, if if you're sceptical, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, please don't hear Jesus saying, look, you mustn't ask questions. You must turn your brain off and just trust me. No, the, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen he talks about, the Queen of the South, is commended. She's someone who didn't believe and she came and asked loads of questions and eventually she did believe. You might have loads of questions. Brilliant. Come along to one of those cafe events, grab people afterwards, talk, ask questions. That's great. That is not who Jesus is warning, uh, or that is not the people Jesus is warning here. The people Jesus is warning are those who've heard the gospel time and time and time again, but will not repent. Are those who are religious again, like the Pharisees, who come along to church week by week, but continue to reject Jesus. It's as if slowly we're hardening. We're like clay figures. Children, if you ever made someone out of clay, a little figure, and slowly they go hard, don't they? Either we'll harden in worship of Jesus or we'll harden with our fists held up to him. One day it'll be too late. And that day might come before Jesus returns. We can harden our hearts too far so that actually we never repent. It's a bit like smoking. How many cigarettes give you lung cancer? One? Two? Five? Fifty? Five hundred? I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. It differs person to person, doesn't it? But at some point it will do. How many times do you have to reject the gospel before it's too late? One, two, ten, fifty? I don't know. It'll differ person to person. But at some point it does just get too late. So if you hear Jesus speaking, saying, come to me and find forgiveness, don't wait. Don't put it off. There's nothing you need to do. He just says, come and admit your sin." Admit you need forgiveness and I'll give it to you for free. I was taught as a a teenager, ABC, admit your sin, believe Jesus died for you and come and follow him. It's as simple as that. That's all we need to do. Don't put it off. Christian, the way you'll continue to know Jesus is through the gospel, through putting your trust daily in the cross Uh, for forgiveness of your sins. That's how you get to know him more. There's no magical extra way of getting to know him. That the way that your heart grows and develops is by constantly repenting and believing, trusting that he has died, he has risen. You are forgiven. Christians are people who trust the gospel. And finally, and perhaps most significantly, as we wrap up, Christians are people who have changed hearts. Spirit-filled people have changed hearts. Jesus' family have changed hearts. If you only remember one verse from this morning, make it verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is your heart that really matters. The, the, the words just reveal what's in your heart. Have you, ever put, have you ever cut flowers and put them in? If you, put a, if you cut a flower and put it in water that's full of blue ink, what happens to the petals? They turn blue, don't they? Yeah. The petals reveal what's down in the roots. So with our words. What do your words reveal about you? Let me ask you that. What do your words reveal about what you treasure? To use Jesus' language. 
we all treasure something. There's something in our lives that we want to live for, something we value more than anything else. And your words will reveal it. Why do you lie? You lie because you treasure something more than pleasing Jesus. So you've done something wrong, you, you, you don't want to admit it, you don't want to get caught, you don't want to face the, the, the humiliation or the, or the consequences or the discipline or the punishment, so we lie because it is more important to us to protect our image than it is to please Jesus. Our treasure is in the wrong place. A married couple fight and argue. They, they just always have to have the last word. They squabble and bicker. Why? Because what are they treasuring in their heart? That they're treasuring their own righteousness over pleasing Christ. Uh, even though Christ was willing to forgive his enemies, to say on the cross, Father, forgive them, to those who are crucifying him, they treasure, the, the bickering couple, they treasure being right more than they treasure Christ. Your words reveal what you treasure. So let me ask two questions. How much care are you taking of your heart, Christian? We take lots of care of lots of our bodies, don't we? Some of us do. How much time did it take you to do your hair this morning? How much time did it take you to, to, to sort your, your face out? Okay. How much time do you spend in the gym making sure your lungs are pumping, or your toned abs, or whatever it might be? We spend a lot of time investing in various parts of our body, don't we? But what about your heart? That is the key organ in your body for Jesus. Uh, are you careful with it? Making sure it is constantly softening rather than hardening. To God's word? Or are you cavalier, investing much more time in your physical health than your spiritual? Let me ask another question. At what level do you seek change? If you know that your words are giving you away, you're saying things you don't want to. Well, frankly, any behaviour you don't like in your life. At what level are you seeking change? Just at the level of behaviour? Or are you seeking to see your heart changed? You know, people, people who are angry, who lash out, are told, well, count to ten before you speak. And that, that's okay advice. But it's just very surface level. If you really want to change, then it has to be at heart level. Our, our words speak, show what we treasure. That, by the way, and this is something beside, but that, by the way, is why the service here at church begins with God calling us to worship. Every week you'll find there's a verse that says something like, you know, praise the Lord. I mean, the Psalms are full of it. That often that verse will say, will be commanding us to speak because God wants the world to reverberate with his praise. He wants people who, who, whose mouths tell how great he is. That's why we, always put a, well, we often put something like a creed towards the end of the service. Creeds aren't just a way of learning material. You know, they're not just the sort of equivalent of saying, you know, two times two is four, three times two is six, or Robert of York gave battle in vain to remember the colours of the rainbow. They're not spiritual mnemonics to remember stuff. That they are ways of standing up as a people and saying to the world, to the spirits who watch, the angels, to God himself, we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in, in, in Lord Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. He rose again. He ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection ever after. Amen. It's meant to be this joyous declaration, not a kind of trudging, oh, we need to remember these facts. The whole service is designed so that God speaks to us and then we speak back in song or in word in praise of him. Because God wants our hearts to overflow with the good things that he's fed us with. 
Say, how's your heart? If you're honest, is it not a bit mucky? A bit mixed? The water that you draw out of the well, is it it's not that pure? What do you do? You take it to Christ. He's the only one who has a truly pure heart. In verse 18 of chapter 12, we're told that by God the Father that that the Spirit has been put on Jesus. And it's only the Spirit that can change your heart. We can't do it ourselves. There's no surgery we can do. But the Spirit can do it. Jesus can do it. And so if you feel that your, your, your love is fading, your words reveal your heart's all over the place then go to Jesus. The way you get the Spirit is from Jesus. It's not that God gave the the, the Son, Jesus, and then Jesus went back to heaven, game over, and then now God gives the Spirit. God gives the Spirit through Jesus. That's a pattern in verse 18. The Father anoints the Son with the Spirit. God the Father fills Jesus, who's a man, with the Holy Spirit. He's God as well, but he's a man who's full of the Spirit. And he is the one who's able to, to, to handle the Spirit, as it were, to the full extent. He is a true temple of the Holy Spirit, Jesus even as a man. And so therefore, the way that you and I get him is if Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit, to use the language of Matthew 3. That is what Jesus came to do, to baptize you with the Spirit, to change your heart. There's a terrible irony in this passage. The whole thing kicks off with a blind, mute man who's oppressed by evil. By the end of it, we're left with the Pharisees who are blind unable to see who Jesus is. The Pharisees who are mute, unable to speak the truth about Jesus. The Pharisees who are told that they are going to be possessed by far more evil than they ever realised or began with. But Jesus can change that, and Jesus alone. You might have heard of John Calvin, the the great reformer. He had a a seal back in the old days, the good old days when everyone had a seal. And, And Calvin's seal, a seal is a little picture that you'd stamp on things, children. Calvin's seal was a picture of a hand and it held off a heart that was on fire, a burning heart. And the motto round it said this, I offer my heart to you, O Lord, sincerely and promptly. Burning heart, I offer to you, Lord, my heart sincerely and promptly. That is the Christian, that is the Christian attitude. We know our hearts are terrible states, clogged up with sin and evil but bring them to Christ. And not only will he forgive, he will renew them. That is what he offers to you today. He is anointed with the Spirit in order to baptise us with the Spirit, in order to change us from those who who look at Christ and see nothing into those who look at Christ and rejoice, who, 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 who naturally sing the praise that he deserves. So bring him your hearts sincerely, promptly, and he will pour out the fire of the Spirit. The fullness will come when he returns, but, but the work begins now. He is the Spirit-anointed baptizer, far greater than Jonah, far greater than Solomon, far greater than the temple and all the priests have ever come. The one man who is able to transform you and gather you into his family. If he does that for you, then he will look at you on the last day and say, welcome, brother, welcome, sister. He will say to his father, here, is my brother. Here is my sister. And you have eternity in the family home together. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you have poured your spirit upon Christ and that he has shared that spirit with his church. And we pray that like Calvin, we would offer you our hearts sincerely and promptly.
Uh, we confess that our hearts wander far from you, that our mouths reveal all sorts of uh, terrible things about us. But we ask that in your mercy, Christ would transform us. Baptize us with his spirit, we pray. Pour your spirit upon us in increasing measure in order that we might naturally sing the praise of the one who saved us. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.